Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. So we better start because you've got a guest, I've got a guest, and I'm off to Germany, England, the Resistance, the Gestapo, and the Follies Bergere. So I'm going to have a bit of fun this morning, and it's all been brought together by my author, Kenneth Fox, in his novel, A Plum Job. Kenneth, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, Pleasure to be here. Now, look, the novel begins on the cusp of World War II. Do you have a particular fascination with that time? The time between the wars I'm interested in, certainly, the 20s and 30s. Uh, <clears throat> it's a subject that I've read a lot about and am interested in. What's the fascination? Who knows? Um, <laughs> the clothes, uh, the music, um, the theatre, uh, society, uh, all of those things. Well, all of that comes through, but before we get onto those aspects, because I want to discuss them, we've got our heroine, Louise Wellesley. What can you tell us about her? Uh, <coughs> Louise Beatrice Wellesley, to give her her full title, and her initials are significant as well. Um, but <coughs> we shall not reveal that fact uh, you because won't... it uh, might give away the uh, the title. Well, it, it actually goes to the title of Plum Job, mm. is, the, is the name of the book. Yep. So if people can sort of put the association of what you've said, they can sort it out for themselves or it's, it's explained in the novel. But go on, Louise, tell us. Uh, Louise is uh, an interesting person. She has uh, a burning desire to act and does so even at a toddler age. Uh, she comes from an aristocratic family. Her father's brother uh, is a Viscount. Uh, he's also a gin-soaked, <laughs> cat-loving recluse. And uh, when they make their annual visit, the family with her two older brothers make the annual visit to Uncle Crispin's. She performs. She does her Shirley Temple routine. But you have a love of theatre, dare I say it? Uh, I do, yes. Uh, I think that's a fair statement. Um, <laughs> Well, but the point is, um, just to digress for a moment, because there are a few little digressions in this novel. There are lots of um, novelties or insights or um, your interests come through. And this one with theatre is a case in point. And I'm reading from page 25 where you talk about Noel Coward. When Mr Coward wrote the play, parts of the second act were deemed unsuitable. The fact that a divorced couple could be could rekindle their love and actually consummate same was deemed scandalous. The Theatre's Act of 1843 gave sweeping powers to the Lord Chamberlain, who alone decided if every play is fitting for the preservation of good manners. Private lives was deemed unsuitable, and only on appeal in person from the playwright, lyricist, composer, director and leading man all played by Mr Coward, managed to persuade the guardian of morals that the play would not result in the collapse of civilization. In 1930, private lives went ahead as writ. All this background information there about theatre, for example. Mm. What was society really like? Well, then? the Lord Chamberlain was a hugely important and significant person. He basically was a censor. And so if you as a playwright... Uh, created a play and then found a, a venue for it to be staged, you would not go ahead unless you got a tick of approval from the Lord Chamberlain. Mm. So he was the guardian of the morals, so to speak. Well, Shakespeare suffered from the same problem. Exactly it, the same problem. Everything, everything had to be approved. Mm. But it goes into that era, that time, because um, women on the stage, there were problems for women and education as well. Mm. 
Well, let's uh, take it into great detail in, in the play because of her aristocratic background, Louise wants to go to school and uh, young women of that era and certainly of that societal rank were not permitted to go to school. They stayed at home, were educated at home and the only education they then got was to go to a finishing school in, say, France or Switzerland, after which they came home and remained at home until uh, their husband was selected for them. So she had all of that societal pressure on her, wanting to go to school and, moreover, wanting to be an actress. And, of course, those women, that her career didn't, didn't have a career. They didn't work at all. Um, but also the problem is she's also very well educated in, or very intelligent, shall we say. Yes, she is all of those things. Um, but, see, she had a governess from a very young age. Uh, she had a nanny, of course, and Nanny Barnes taught her a song which she sings on the very first page of the novel. Uh, and then subsequently repeats it uh, in a Paris brothel 16 years later. This, well, this is the storyline because she gets, um, how shall we say, recruited uh, into, well, on the cusp of World War II. Would you like to explain? Well, MI6, people know about MI5 and MI6 today, but a part of uh, the early days of MI6 was the SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service, it wasn't the SOE, which was really the, the baby of Winston Churchill and Nancy Wake. Your, your listeners would know about Nancy Wake and her role with the SOE. But the SIS uh, developed sleepers. These were people who went into uh, countries and were not spies as such. They simply became a part of society in that country where they were living. And she gets to be chosen because she's seen as a, a young... We're jumping ahead here, but she gets to be seen on stage and her agent, her London agent, is also a part-time worker with the SIS, finding people who would be ideal in that role. And this is where the Follies Bajer comes in and all of these sorts of things and the life then she leads, which is totally opposite from her English life. Yes, if only her mother knew, she was wearing a costume which was over the top, which didn't go over the top on stage at the Follies Bergere. Um She had to tell her family because she has to sign the official Secrets Act. That still exists today. The one she signed was the 1920 version. So she wasn't allowed to tell anyone what she was doing and what she did do was tell her mother and brothers and uh, friends that she was uh, touring with a Shakespearean theatre company in South Africa, Australia and New Zealand. So the SIS have letters and cards that are already sent to Australia and they are then posted back to England. It's all, yeah, it's all this detail that, that you bring out, which brings me to the second strand uh, in the story, because you've got the German setting and uh, the cousins Kurt and Max. Yes, they're two cousins who are very close because they only have sisters as siblings, their fathers are brothers, and the families holidayed a lot together. So these two boys, these male cousins, had a lot to do with one another as children, and they were quite close. When they became adults, um, one became a policeman in Berlin, in the Berlin police force, and the other joined the army and joined the Wehrmacht. So one is a, a panzer tank commander, and the other is a Berlin policeman, but the Berlin policeman is persuaded, shall we say, to join another political force, police force called the Gestapo. Gestapo. Now, I want to get into some detail here, because of what you've been saying about um, the SIS and MI5 and M uh, MI6, you love the detail. And I'm just wondering, you give us some detail about, um, well, to begin with, the Gestapo and how its name came about, 
Manfred Faber worked in the Berlin Postal Service. He was her average, but managed one spectacular achievement. He changed the language. Not many people get to invent a word. In Nazi Germany, the secret state police were called the Geheime Staatspolizei. This new government enterprise handled correspondence. Mail was sorted, stamped, and sent on its way. And the key to a good stamp is brevity. But squeezing Geheime Staatspolizei into a single stamp was tricky. Manfred Faber had an idea. He chose letters from each word. The GH, the, the GE from Geheimer, the STA from Staats, and the PO from Polizei. And so the stamp read, Gestapo. Did Manfred ever know how hated and reviled his invented word would become? Did Manfred ever think he would be discussed on 3CR? There you go. <laughs> but here's the go. You love this detail, which leads me then to the uh, attempt on Hitler's life, which we have in here. Just how accurate, true, how fabricated, fictional is it? Well, everything is uh, fictional uh, in the sense that um, that particular attempt is, is is invented, but there were, we know of, 16 attempts on the Fuhrer's life. So There was, well, this is even before World War II commences, and I just sort of looked it up because knowing your love of detail, I was wondering how much was in there. There's the Oster conspiracy. Are you aware of that? I am. I'm aware of the different attempts on his life, etc. Yeah. But I, 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 I didn't copy one of the ones that had already happened. I invented something because it was related to one of the cousins who... Yeah. Uh, becomes involved in the actual assassination attempt. Um, yeah, it's just the Oster conspiracy was sort of before the war and a lot of those involved were uh, German and um, then became part of a, a sort of resistance later on. So I just thought, ah, I wonder what Ken has done here. Um, you bring these two strands together then. How much can you tell us about that? Well, the three main characters are the two German cousins and, of course, uh, the English actress. So she is sent to Paris as a sleeper for the SIS. And uh, Max, who is the panzer tank commander, he's prominent in the Battle of France, uh, in which France suffers uh, a tremendous loss. And so he then goes to Paris while he's waiting to go to North Africa with Rommel and uh, the other cousin, Kurt, who became the Gestapo officer, he is appointed to Paris. And the two cousins don't know that uh, the other has been or has landed in Paris. And so we've got the two German cousins and Louise, the English actress, all three of them are in Paris and how they intertwine is what the story's all about. And therefore you'd have to read it to find out rather than have us explain it to you. But you have conspiracy and spies and love and intrigue and all sorts of things. Um, the usual fare where that goes. But I want to take this discussion just a step further. You've gone down the self-publishing line, Ken. I have, yes. Uh, like uh, millions of other people who've uh, been rejected by literary agents and uh, publishers en masse. Um, I've found a way to, uh, well, certainly with plays, I've published all my own plays and use agents overseas to promote them, uh, which I've been doing now for 40 years. Fox Plays turns 40 in uh, 2015. Um, and I've written some children's books, which again I've self-published on a Sherlock Holmes theme. But this is the first novel that I've actually finished. Right. But it's an achievement in itself. Speak, speaking of Sherlock Holmes, uh, he does make an appearance, shall we say, strangely enough. Yeah. I, I wonder why, Ken. 
Well, I was accosted in the foyer of my last play, uh, Don Bradman Lives Next Door, by some well-known actors who said, is it possible for you to write a play without mentioning Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> is it possible for you to write anything without mentioning Sherlock Holmes? Uh, well, Sherlock Holmes is a, uh, is a very interesting character, Sherlock Holmes. Well, he makes uh, an, well, a, a sort of an appearance in a an conversation, oblique, an, oblique an, an oblique. So there, mm. there are these oblique references uh, throughout the novel, uh, Dickens gets oblique references and all sorts of things, um, so you have to be well read. But I'm, I'm, I am still interested in this self-publishing line because you've really got a global market, and with your plays especially, which you've mainly written for schools, is it, or how no, broad? No, I started are they? writing for adults uh, and staged the plays myself. And uh, then I went overseas to live in London to become famous, and I'm still waiting. And uh, when I came back, I was teaching at the time, so I changed from writing for adults to writing for children. And then at the turn of the millennium, I thought I'll go back to writing for adults again, and so I've written a lot of small cast plays for adults. Mm. But has the internet then enabled you to...? Yeah, the internet is interesting. Uh, I used to print catalogues and send catalogues to theatre companies and schools and that was productive. The internet came along and all of a sudden I had plays on in South Korea and Brazil and Germany and Nigeria and places like this and it would never have heard of me apart from the internet. But again it's now sort of settled back to the main publishers of plays send out catalogues. They still use the good old-fashioned printed material. So it's interesting from that point of view. But I would have thought with a set market in schools, etc., you've got a direct point of contact there in I terms do, of but getting out what you want. Teachers retire and teachers die, and uh, people that have staged my plays are suddenly no longer there, and so the new teachers have to be reminded that yeah. you have this material available. And perfect for, for um, students, mm. and all, especially those that love Sherlock Holmes. Ken, <laughs> we're going to have to finish the interview there, but... The book is entitled A Plum Job, a literary th thriller. The uh, author is Kenneth Fox, and it's um, self-published. We normally mention the publisher or Fox Publications. Fox Plays is the Fox, publisher. Fox Plays, but it's a novel. Jan, over to you. Well, uh, Rebecca Stafford is my guest, and she's been into a published or not many times, but not as an author, more so as an editor of a literary magazine called Kill Your Darlings. Now, Hannah Kent was the other author, or co-editor of that, and Hannah, of course, par uh, published or wrote Burial Rights about a woman living and dying in harsh climates. Now, that was Ireland. Hannah Kent... Uh, Hanneken's co-author Rebecca who I've got here your book is a bit closer to home and a lot more personal and welcome back thanks for having me Jan there are not too many women I know who could or would want to pitch their own tent and sleep out in the Victorian bush now where did you get this knowledge and ability from Rebecca <laughs> um I think it uh, uh, started when I was a child. I, we were a, I came from a camping family. We'd head out every every school holidays uh, and pitch a tent somewhere around Australia. Um, now I look back on it fondly, but at the time I think I didn't enjoy it as much as I, I should have. So I became a real expert in pitching the tents, which was needed for the year that I write about in Bad Behaviour. So in Bad Behaviour, which year is it? I'm I'm 14 in in the memoir, so it's year mm -hmm. nine. And the memoir, the subtitle is A Memoir of Bullying and Boarding School. Were you the bullied or the bullier? Uh, 
both actually yeah. as as the book describes um which I, which is an interesting position at least you know to write about and to talk about um and I think is far more common for girls than we do openly talk about as well so the memoir really explores that position and how it's interchanging in girls friendship groups well let's set the scene so as an adult with more understanding of yourself you go back to the school where you boarded for this year now did you know any of the other girls when I when I arrived at the school I knew one other girl in my unit so I so I arrived and I was living in a in a house called Red House uh, with 15 other girls and I knew one other girl um, I'd been at the junior school city campus um, the previous few years but most of the girls had come from a different campus and I and they were unknown to me and she was in uh, a bit of a group at that earlier school calling you Bugs Bunny because of your teeth and they, they look lovely now <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, yeah uh, good orthodontic work uh, there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yes, that is um, that is what had happened. So I, I certainly arrived with, you know, a degree of trepidation. Yeah. But you expected to find instant new friends, not this deep black loneliness. Mm. Now, did you walk in thinking that you were equal to all the other girls? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I was a student at the school um, through a scholarship um, when I was 10 years old. Um, so the school that I attended is is quite an elite and prestigious school, um, at, attended by a range of different students from different families, um, but it's a, it is a very expensive school to attend as well. But no, certainly the campus that I write about, it's called Silver Creek in the book, uh, really puts everyone on a on an even uh, playing field because it's a really Spartan environment. The house that we live in, uh, we have no heating or cooling. Hot water is generated through a boiler. Um, we had no modern amenities at all, so no television, no phones, uh, no laptops, uh, no, uh, you know, nothing really. The way we communicated with the outside world was through letters uh, home to our family and friends. So we were really kind of stripped back in that way. So group of 16 girls? Mm-hmm. Was there a natural leader? I think so, yeah. Um, very early on, um, I certainly identified um, the more powerful girls in the house. And uh, as I describe in the book, I felt myself, uh, you know, immediately drawn drawn to them and quite entranced by them. Portia, one of the friends, and this is a quote from the book, I like the power I feel in her company. I like the way other girls look at me with hesitation, with a bit of admiration and with a bit of fear. Jan, what have you done? <laughs> I'm going to re- get... Um... <laughs> uh, you, Jan was very rushed this morning, so that's probably why... But Sorry. there we let's continue with the interview, shall oh, I do we? I apologise. I'm going red with embarrassment. Oh dear, dear, dear. You know, fancy happens to the best of us, Jan. Oh. No fear. Oh. Oh. Right. Well, Portia. One of the way, right, ways she keeps control is by victimising other people, using other people as scapegoats, so that you you know that um, well, you don't want to be treated like that. So you remain a friend. And look, let's just get get a sense of this. This is how the book starts, and I've got to say it was a pretty <sighs> out there start. So this is uh, this is the prologue. Um, uh, the actual uh, event takes place about halfway through the school year. It's late just before lights out, and we're all tucked up in bed. My book is face down in my lap, untouched. It's too cold to read. It is the dead of winter. My breath hangs like mist in front of my face. 
A few beds down, Ronnie is sniping across the aisle at Kendall. Hey, KFC, albino pubes, have you, have you wet yourself tonight? And Portia, in the bed beside her, laughs. All of a sudden, Kendall throws back the doona and leaps out of bed, her feet slapping against the floorboards as she makes her way to the, to the light switch. Next minute, the dorm goes black and everyone shouts, 15 voices in a peeved chorus. Slivers of moonlight shine against the dusty windows. I can just make out Kendall rustling at her bedside table. Then she is brandishing something, a can of impulse. She stands at the top of the aisle, facing out over the beds, and begins to spray up and down her pyjama pants. The sickly scent of musk drifts through the dorm. I hear the lighter click like the sharpening of a switchblade, and a flame shudders in the gloom. Watch this, Kendall murmurs. And I stare, transfixed, as she moves the lighter down towards her ankle, to the cuff of her pants. It catches the aerosol fumes, and with a great whoosh she is alight, enormous blue flames pulsing up her legs, her face caught in an obscene grimace, her arms thrown wildly in the air. It's pretty horrific way to start, I can tell you. <laughs> and um, so, you know, Kendall is, is... She does this because she feels so victimised. And anyway, look, that's one part of the book. Others... You know, you were a good girl before you started there, but you did show some bad behaviour, but really mm. a lot of the bad behaviour was perhaps um, hijinks. Explain what the bell run was. So there was a tradition at the school called the bell run um, where girls and boys, and this is also a campus where boys attended too, um, uh, in the middle of the night, it was a test or a dare to run out with no clothes on from your dormitory down to the chapel bell um, and ring it as many times as you dared and run back up uh, to the house. And the bell could be heard around the whole campus and uh, I think woke up most people if it was rung out like that. So our unit um, was famous for doing it all the time um, and we did it, I think we did it first in the whole, out of all of the students in the school, which was something of an achievement um, <laughs> at that age. And what type of punishment would you get once you were caught? Well, most of the punishment at Silver Creek was physical in that we were expected to run. So, you know, uh, whereas you know, I imagine in other schools you might get a detention after school if you were late to class or participated in something like the bell run uh, you went on a, well the first round of, of kind of punishment was um, a run up and down uh, the school drive which is about five kilometres um, but you had to do that at uh, in, uh, first thing in the morning yes. at 6am um, oh. and if you didn't make it back in a certain time you had to do it again the next morning oh <laughs> Uh, towards the end of the year, you're expected to do a marathon mm -hmm. as well as a four-day hike. Six-day hike, Six yeah. Six-day hike. Yep. Carry everything. Oh, yes. Incredible. <laughs> so it's, it, a lot of the book is t talking about that and uh, your, your own confidence in your physicality too. Uh, through the writing, we do read about your delight in being in the bush, mm. the um, sense of achievement in climbing a mountain and viewing the natural beauty. Um, in Year 10, you had the first real gush of for one of the teachers, Miss Sanya, and I'm going to get you to read this bit here. This is from page 148. All oh, right, okay. <clears throat> I know the rest of the house doesn't feel like this. I know they like Miss Sanya, but they don't go red whenever she walks, whenever she talks to them or get sweaty palms and a thick voice. They might think she's pretty, but they're not excited by that beauty. It doesn't make them anxious or uncomfortable. 
They don't want to be with her when she isn't around, and they don't long to have her looking at them. Those feelings they have around boys, never girls. So you write about that um, the French teacher trying to take apart the threads of these feelings you have for her and only managing to work them back into a tighter knot. Very mm. nice. So after this year 10, back into the city, more life choices, you get, get older with friends and lovers and you learn about love and grief with when relationships end and there's more consequences, more bad behaviour when uh, you're picked, picked up for drink driving mm-hmm. and then there's Mary. How did Mary change your Mary was a therapist that I went to uh, shortly, uh, shortly after I was uh, I was caught drink driving. It was a very low, obviously, a very low time in my life. Um, I'd I'd come out of a difficult and dysfunctional relationship. I was still struggling with a lot of feelings of shame about being gay, um, and I realised that this is not something I could kind of cope with and deal with on my own. So I went to Mary. Um, at first I thought she was a, a just a regular counsellor but it turned out that she was a psychotherapist um, and I felt in that instance, um, you know, like I was sort of uh, living a kind of cliche um, but then I found that uh, talking to, to her and 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 that relationship you know that therapeutic one that was sort of established between us was was really life-changing and and transformative um and during our conversations long long rambling conversations we went back to that time in my life um at silver creek and, and childhood as well and talked a lot about the dynamics of that friendship and i came to understand that that it had informed a lot of this behavior as I got older and the relationships that I'd formed and some of the unhealthy ones. And I saw that the pat- the patterns of behavior had been repeating and that was a really liberating and, a- and also confronting realization. Yeah, you've got a quote here from her. You can't change your impulses, but you can at least try to understand them. Yep. That's a good one. So if you think Red House is what happens these days, would have a 10 year reunion Uh, (laughs) would you go back well we did have a school reunion but I didn't (laughs) I didn't Uh go to it and I don't think I'll be going to any anytime soon um but of course you know you're writing about a particular time um the girls in the house will have all changed as well just as I have and and probably have similar feelings about this time in our life as well and would have processed it in different ways so I mean it would be it would be wonderful to, to talk to them again, but I, I don't know if that would be an easy conversation. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rebecca Stafford, your own writing, you kept a diary as, as through year 10, but it wasn't an honest one. You were too, I think, scared to write down your true feelings because, once again, the diaries could be snatched and read and that happened to poor Kendall and nothing was ever locked. You were encouraged to trust those that you live with, which you really couldn't. Mm. So you never had truth in a diary. So here you've come back with the memories of going back there as an adult to walk through that school and get that sense of shame, friendliness, fear. Oh. Yeah, and that was what was really interesting. We, we had to keep these diaries, which was a great um, resource when it came to writing the books because it helped me frame, you know, the year um, because I couldn't have remembered all of that on, on my own. Uh, but I also came to recognise that I'd, I'd been fabricating um, 
or, or at least writing um, writing out or, or there was an absence of, of truthful events that happened because I knew that I didn't there were some things I didn't want to remember um, which mm. was really interesting and futile because I remembered them anyway. And sort of we turn on from writing because you've got your own writing group now that helped you format this book. Mm, yeah, a terrific, terrific group of, of women. We meet, well, actually, we've been a bit slack lately, I must say, but we are getting back on board. Um, and that was a really wonderful support network. Um mostly talking about what it was that I was going to write because, you know, when you're, when you're writing memoir, um, three out of the four members of the writing group have written memoirs. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of questions that you ask yourself and a lot of worries and concerns. So that was really wonderful. Well, you're putting your, your whole life in this book. Yeah. It's, it's a big ask. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I've been speaking with Rebecca Stafford about her book, Bad Behaviour, published by Alan and Unwin. And I was speaking to Kenneth Fox about a plum job. Well, 